Well, hey, I'm David Spencer. Hopefully, we can talk about some of the entrepreneurial stuff that I've been doing and lessons learned there. That's exactly what we're going to do. I think we're going to be talking about the book, Crossing the Chasm. You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham. Uh, where did you grow up? So I, I'm an army brat. Grew up all over the world, actually. I was born in Germany. Lived in Panama in the Canal Zone. Whoop! But we just ended up in San Antonio more often than any other places. My dad was a military officer, hospital administrator. I grew up around military hospitals. So we really didn't have a hometown. My family's from Iowa. And I happened to be in San Antonio when I graduated from high school, MacArthur High School. I went off to UT Austin to get my engineering degree. But I started dating a girl from San Antonio. And the amazing coincidence, I married that girl. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I needed to come back to San Antonio. And that's what ended up putting roots down. And really, the only time as an adult I've ever lived anywhere is right here. So that's that's how it went. And here you are. Uh, I don't want to say too many years later, but certainly some years some later. Some years later. When I first came, every, I, dinosaurs ruled the world in uh, <laughs> Jurassic Park of San Antonio. You know, it's a great city. I've really felt blessed. We're, we put roots down here. My dad uh, retired from the military, and then he came back here. He's passed now, but my mom's still alive. And then my wife, uh, her dad, who was a physician in the military, he retired here. He's still alive, and uh, so uh, of my six siblings, four of us now live in or near San Antonio. So that whole military city USA thing fascinates me because it's a it's a draw for talent, and I'm a case of it. I mean, we were here because of the military, and Jenny, my wife, was here because her dad was in the military. So. Um, that's always been a really fascinating thing about our community and a powerful, powerful thing that I think sometimes is poorly appreciated. So you, you graduate from UT Austin, you come Barely. back, come back to San Antonio. What'd you do next? Yeah. Um, I better admit that for those of you out there that are, might be thinking about entrepreneurship or doing it when I die, my academic career is not going to be at the top of my list of accomplishments. <laughs> I'll just say it that way. I, it took me five and a half years. I did get an engineering degree, electrical and computer engineering, a real degree, barely got it, but I did get it. And boy, that was tough. And today, I, I don't think I could get into UT today, let alone stay in. But that was back in the early 80s. And uh, so it was a good foundation. But then I needed a job, an engineering job in San Antonio. So uh, imagine back to those days, if you can. And there was really only two major engineering employers in the city, which was Southwest Research Institute, great spot, and the military, Kelly Air Force Base. So at SWERI, you needed grades, an advanced degree, or experience. So for me, that was like, strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. <laughs> so Sweary was not an option. So I was fortunate to get a job at Kelly. Uh, back then, it was right in the lead up to the first dot, bo- uh, dot bomb, dot com. <laughs> there was a couple of dot bombs in there too. But if you remember back to the late 80s were the lead up to the dot com craze. So basically, nobody that was an engineer that was coming out of school was headed to go to work for the military. They were all going to get, you know, worthless stock options in a startup somewhere else. And so I was real blessed to be able to get a job down at Kelly. It was actually a job where a lot of government engineering is actually overseeing other people doing work. And uh, I got really, really lucky because I got into a shop where we were actually doing some engineering work. And that was really the start of my career and putting roots down in San Antonio. So we, we talked before we started the interview here. I know you have two businesses, one technology-based, one a medical device-based. We're going to talk mostly about the medical device company. How did you start your entrepreneurial journey? You're, you're in a job. Something took you out of that job. Tell us a little bit about that. Thanks. You know, it wasn't, uh, it was a rogue gene. My dad was a military officer. 
Uh, my mom was a teacher and a homemaker. Uh, really didn't get a lot of financial training at all, business training at all. Started working at Kelly. My original plan was we had four Air Force bases, and I figured if I went to work for myself, um, if I could learn how to do something of interest to the Air Force and learn how to sell to the Air Force, heck, there's four Air Force bases here. I ought to be able to make a decent living, which was the sole uh, background to my business strategy. And uh, right in the middle of that process, I was going to go be an engineer. Then I was going to learn to be an engineering manager. Then I was going to go learn how the Air Force buys stuff, work in a SPO, a system program office, if I could. And then I was going to take a staff job, hopefully meet a bunch of important people, then get out and start a company. And somewhere in the middle of that, they closed the base. So I had a choice as an engineer working for the Air Force. I was a civilian. I was not in the military. I was a civilian employee of the military. And they said, well, your job is going to move to one of three places. And I didn't want to move to any of those three places. I wanted to stay in San Antonio. So that was the little nudge I needed to get going. I started taking business classes at night it's funny because I was an engineer, so I kind of thought that I was like this highly trained technical dude, pretty smart dude. When I started doing business, I'm like, wow, nobody taught me any of this stuff in school, like none of it. So uh, that was an eye opener, by the way. But I did. I just went started going to class at night, just reading books and ideas. You're the whole uh, genesis of your podcast, which I love, is the power of ideas. And how do you go gather them and grab them up and uh, just being a curious George. So, so yeah, I jumped out. I started a software company in my back bedroom, declared to the world that this, ta-da, this company existed. And then I starved for quite a while. <laughs> it was fascinating. But my college roommate had gotten a big severance from his engineering company. And he moved into my back bedroom, true story. He could get paid for six months on a severance. So he said, all right, Dave, you got six months to get this thing going. But uh, at the end of six months, I've got to go get a real job. So that was the start of my entrepreneurial career. A lot more just blind luck and then nudges, you know, karma. I God, however you want to push that, getting a nudge that, oh, your job's going away and loading up with one of the smartest engineers you knew in the world and him saying, okay, I'm going to nudge you. You got six months. So those types of things, looking back, have just been real blessed. So what happened in those six months and how did we draw the direct line from that moment in your life to where we are today? Great question. We got really lucky. We knew how to do something that very few people knew how to do, which was we knew how to maintain a jet engine health monitoring system for the C-5 aircraft. You still see the big C-5s flying around San Antonio. Big, giant, beautiful planes, by the way. Fascinating planes. And they have computers that monitor the jet engines and really every system on the plane for maintenance purposes. And back then, the defense contractors, uh, that was Lockheed that built that plane but they were building the F-22. So all their engineers were over on the F-22. There was nobody wanted to work on this old clunky crappy system. So we government folk had to do it. And there was a small group of us that were working on that. When they closed the base, they said, you guys got to move. And we all said, we don't want to. So I said, let's start a company. We'll offer to the Air Force to continue to do that same job, only now we'll do it as onboard software. And I went to the Air Force legal team and said, how do I do this? I, I had no idea how to do it. They helped me make sure we didn't do anything wrong. And then I went back to those same engineers I was working with and I said, hey, instead of working for Uncle Sam, why don't you come work for me? And most of them said, are you crazy? But enough of them said, let's try it. We don't want to move either. 
So we started that little company and then we grew that one uh, well beyond that first start. And then, uh, you know, several years later, we sold it for a cadoodle of money. And uh, that was really nice. And then that allowed me to go do some tech investing. I did tech investing, by the way, for quite a while. I still do. Um, that's a fascinating part of my life. I uh, got pretty good at it. Not bragging. Um, but uh, it's kind of boring. Investing is great. I call it hope and pray investing. Like there's maybe some folks listening that I've invested in their companies. And I hope and pray I get some money back. But they're doing the work, right? So somewhere along the way, um, I was investing. And then the governor asked me to do some public service. So I served on the Emerging Tech Fund. And that was three years of just doing nothing but investing. $350 million. Sounds fancier than it is. Um, that's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. Not when you have the whole state of Texas. But now we were investing in startup companies out of universities. So somewhere along the way, that became part of my 10,000 hours. And I got good at it, And uh, but I just didn't have a lot of psychic energy coming from it. I'm not the best of teachers, more of a doer. And I just longed to get back into entrepreneurship. Quick break break on this fascinating little story. So in San Antonio, Texas, I did not know this when I was a techie. I bet a lot of techie listeners might still might not know this. There are, call it 950 MDs, PhDs, and other researchers get up every day, kiss their significant other, go down to Fort Sam Houston and work on stuff for wounded warriors. I had no idea that was going on. It's right next to BAMC, if you've ever been or driven by it on I-35. There's Brook Army Medical Center, the hospital. There's the Center for the Intrepid, and uh, which is where they do rehab for a lot of the horribly wounded folk. They just do amazing work there. And then there's this building right in between them that used to be called the Institute for Surgical Research. It's got a fancier name now. I learned about that place because I was working up in Austin for the governor, and we heard, hey, they're getting all this federal money. It's coming into San Antonio, but it's bouncing out. It's not staying sticky. So my job, true story, was to go knock on the door, throw the governor's name around, and talk to the commander and say, hey, how can we keep some of that money here in San Antonio or in Texas? That's where I learned about this great opportunity we have around medical devices in particular. And they do a lot of pharma, by the way, and biologics and other stuff too. But I was fascinated by the devices part. So I met them while I was doing my governor's job, and they didn't have any entrepreneurs hanging out. And I said, huh. So I spent about a year trying to convince the governor, the lieutenant governor and the speaker, to change the emerging tech fund to include military, not just university. I failed at that, which is, was actually the right decision because it's already not very much money for a very intractable problem. But it just left me freedom to operate. So after I was done with the Emerging Tech Fund and I finally kicked free, uh, after doing that for about three years, I said, hey, I went and knocked on their door and said, I'm an entrepreneur. Can I help? And they said, I don't know, can you? And uh, so that was the start of my shift from being a techie back in the day to being now a med device guy. And uh, so that's a weird way to connect those dots, but that's what actually happened. So that's a, a fascinating story and a fascinating lead up to why you're where you are today. And just before we got on, we talked a little bit about the the product or the solution that you're bringing to the market. Let's talk a little bit about that, and then we're going to jump into how do you take this new and fascinating idea and bring it into the marketplace in the lens of the ideas from Crossing the Chasm. So let's start with where, where did you come up with the idea for this company? Okay, so I did not come up with the idea for this company. That's but People give me credit for this, which is really kind of them, but it's actually not the case. So what happens is, Docs, men and women, they deploy downrange. They're in the military. They go to war. Then they get these casualties. And when you go to war, the equipment that you have is 
this microscript. You get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. So they spend a lot of time trying to figure out what they're going to need, but it's almost always based on the last war. And the nature of warfare is the bad guys are not going to fight you the way you fought the last war because you won it. They're going to do different stuff. So in this war, the signature wound has been IEDs, explosions. Basically, if you want to kill an American and you shoot at them, they shoot back and they kill you. It's a really bad career choice, right? Some people still do it, but they tend to lose. So instead, they plant bombs or suicide bombs. And so you have these intractable, this intractable problem, which is um, how do you fight against giant oversized landmines? It's very difficult. So this injury patterns that we're seeing are different from previous wars. So these docs deploy downrange, see these injury patterns, and go, hey, I need something better than what I've got. So for our little company, the problem is truncal hemorrhage. So in your trunk, your body, if a big blast overpressure from a bomb, even if you're wearing body armor, it can break you up inside. That blast, that overpressure can just, like getting hit by a baseball bat. It's a really bad career choice. Now, if you're bleeding from your extremities, you can put a tourniquet on. So there's a saying, another little microscript. No one should bleed to death. And the sooner you stop bleeding, the better. So no one should bleed to death. If you bleed to death, that is a potentially survivable death. Doesn't mean you're going to survive, but you shouldn't bleed to death. Let something else kill you. So these docs are getting these blast victims, and they're bleeding internally. And that's a really tough clinical problem, because the only way to stop bleeding internally is to open the body. Now think about that. You're bleeding to death. And now the doc has to cut you open and cause more bleeding before they can go in and fix it. So it's a really bad career choice. And the best technique they used to have was either laparotomy, where they'd open the belly, or thoracotomy, where they'd open the thorax, both of which have miserable survival rates. Thoracotomy survival rates like less than 10%. Laparotomy, if you're hypotensive still, it's a coin flip. Like 48% of those folk don't make it because you're in bad, bad shape at this point. So these docs go down range. They see these men and women getting blown up. And they're, the only way to save them is cut them open. And they're, they're like, that's crazy. We need a better way. But they're already down range. They can't do anything there. So they come back to where? Sleepy little San Antonio, Texas. They go to the ISR and they say to the 950 MDs and PhDs, we need a better way. And one of those, two of those docs actually went down range, had a Marine gunnery sergeant that got blown up. And uh, that guy got to them in theater, was circling the drain, was already bleeding to death. They attempted a thoracotomy and the guy didn't make it. Those military docs get really crabby if they lose somebody to bleeding. It's a potentially survivable death. So they came back to San Antonio, Texas and said, we need a gadget that will help. So the, their idea, not mine, was why don't we use a catheter? It's a plastic stick with a balloon on the end of it. And there's already a lot of use of catheters in medicine to do heart stenting, but they had not been using catheters in the emergency critical care environment. And catheters are great, but the way they're designed right now, most catheter use is urgent, but it's not emergent. So if you get in a bad car crash or you get blown up, we won't get blown up by a bomb, but it's amazing. If you get in a horrible car crash, uh, very similar to getting blown up, just not the fire part, but the all the blunt force trauma, and you can be bleeding internally. Bad career choice. So these folk are like, wait a minute. How about if we use catheters? 
but it, this is an emergent procedure now. You're, you could bleed to death in eight minutes. You get your spleen ruptured. You could be in really bad shape, and you could not a drop of blood on the ground. So why don't we simplify the catheters that are out there and design one specifically to be used in the case of hemorrhage? And that was the idea that the inventor, a guy named Todd Rasmussen, he's a colonel, he's a doctor in the Air Force, and he was the guy who got that patient, who he didn't make it. I was in the room, and he was drawn on the whiteboard, and he said, I need, a, I need a catheter that does this. I'm a vascular surgeon. This shouldn't be this hard. But he had gone to all the medical device companies in the country, really, and said, will you build this for me? And they all said, no, nope. And uh, he was talking about his frustration around that. Now, I got it because as an investor, I get something that a lot of people don't, which is big companies, don't get mad, big company people, but they tend not to innovate. They tend to buy innovation, which is why we have this whole techie ecosystem here in San Antonio, in the state. Crazy people building ideas. And then if, they, if it works, they can grow their company or get bought. Med devices works the same way. So he was talking to the buyers, not the builders. And back to the point where the governor sent me down to San Antonio. All this money was coming in here, but none of it was staying. Why? Because we didn't have the innovators here. So that's when I said, aha, I'm an entrepreneur. Maybe, just maybe, I can do this. And it was his idea that I glommed onto. So now I'm really going, but by the way, that was my second effort. True confession. The first one I tried, miserable failure. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. So uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about that, but uh, I always say there's a couple of like gaping shell holes in my life of entrepreneurship and learning to do medical devices is hard that's why I'm glad to talk about crossing the chasm if, if I ever get to the point of this book that uh, Jeffrey Moore wrote that you asked me about, because this is a technology concept that I have adapted into the medical device world. And we're now doing millions of dollars, we did $6 million in revenue last year because of these this book and these ideas. So I love the concept of saying what ideas tangibly, concretely work. And here's an idea in the book Crossing the Chasm that tangibly has worked in an area, a domain it was not intended for. So I love that story. And that's a great Segue then. Let's let's get into let's switch gears for a second and talk about just how you learn in general. Then we're going to get into the ideas in the book and how you apply them to this this new fascinating medical device company. So um, let's talk about how you pick up ideas to begin with. And maybe let's just start with this one. Where did you find out about the book, and how did you consume it? What was going on in in your world at that time? So I love the. Point. A lot of people, they're auditory listeners. Some people are podcasters. Some people are need to go to class. Uh, some people need to do. Uh, some people need to, to see an example first. And some, it's a combination of all of those. I am an idea aggregator. I really have almost, I really can't even think of an original idea I've ever had. I, I mean it. I mean, I just, I aggregate different ideas. I'm the most nosy person I know. I'm a curious George about a lot, and I just am fascinated by ideas. So I am a reader, personally. I read, like, on this crazy stuff called paper. And it's <laughs> written with this stuff the ancient Egyptians used to use called ink. It's this crazy, <laughs> crazy ancient technology. But I love to read. And uh, when I travel, I'm tall, so I'm crammed into a seat. And my defense is I read. I read when I'm eating. I read, 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 read. So I'm a big reader. And uh, constantly reading something. And this was one of the books that I came across back in my techie days about marketing. So 
my style is to read. Um, I can listen. I'm pretty ADD. And back, uh, I now live in Bernie, by the way. And my office is in Bernie. And on a horrible, horrible traffic day in downtown Bernie, my commute is like three minutes. I was listening to Tim Ferriss podcast and a lot of stuff back when I was commuting in and out of San Antonio because I had a lot of drive time. You can't read when you're driving. Darn it. But once I moved to Bernie, my listening time became vanishingly small, but my reading time back up. So I ran across this book probably 20 years ago and definitely had it lurking in the back of my head when I moved into this new domain and I said, I have to figure out how doctors decide to use stuff and therefore buy stuff. And this has been the most fascinating thing for me because it's intellectually the most challenging thing I've done, I think, in my life. It's just fascinating because I am not a doctor. And this is the fascinating thing. We're all techies. Anybody can be a techie. There's not a law that says you're not allowed to be a techie. If you want to learn programming, you want to learn uh, social media, go learn it. And you're an expert if you are an expert. It's a total meritocracy. I love it. Yeah, that's different when it comes to medicine. There is a law and no one is allowed to become a doctor except through a very prescribed process. And if you're not a doctor, by law, you can't practice medicine. So, which makes sense. It makes total sense. But here I am, for the first time in my life, I'm not in the club, but I'm trying to influence people that are in the club. So this has been fascinating because as much as I might want to uh, this goes back to the great idea of uh, Covey, the seven habits of highly successful people. And the one that I'm fascinated by that he talks about your circle of control, which is very small, actually, your circle of influence, which is slightly bigger, and then your circle of concern, which is really big. And his argument is very successful people spend their time in the circle of control some in the circle of influence, and very little in the circle of concern. By the way, you see people who get really riled up about national politics. That is total circle of concern. We see that a lot. Right. <clears throat> I'm, it, from, I, I'm from Canada, Toronto. I was moved here about a year ago, and much more so than in, in Canada. In Canada people get riled up about politics here. So I, I know what you're saying. And maybe we'll cut this out of the interview. Maybe we won't. But it's a, it is a fascinating thing to, well, to, to me, experience. It's interesting because back to the business side, think about this. I can influence those doctors, perhaps. Certainly I'm concerned what they think because my business depends on it. But I cannot control them. Not a chance. So, okay, that's a head scratcher. Because back when I was in the techie world, I could actually, you know, you, whenever you're selling, it's all circle of influence. Not, you, can't, you can't require someone to buy your stuff. But I've never been in a position where there's actually a legal, legally defined guild that is doctors. And I'm not in it. So what tools and ideas am I going to use to help me become more effective? And uh, this has been one, this whole idea of crossing the chasm. When, when did it dawn on you that from 20 years ago, this was the idea that was going to drive the solution to what you just described, which is you don't know very much about these people, how they're making their decisions, and you need to influence them. What made you think, that's the one I'm going to use? Thank you. So... Um, we had this interesting idea this military doctor came up with, and then we went and med devices is very weird because unlike in the techie world, you can build a, a software release and you can put it out there in the marketplace. And if it totally stinks, you know right away, no one's buying it. 
but you can iterate. And uh, this whole concept of iteration and, and uh, the techie world I came out of. Well, in medical devices, you can't do that because by law, in the U.S. and Canada, by the way, you can't sell anything until first you prove to the government two things. You have to prove that it's safe. And in America, you have to prove that it works. It's efficacious. That's through the FDA process. And that takes years after you've built the product. So first you build the product. You hope and pray it works. Then you have to go through a very expensive convoluted process to prove to the government that it does. And then and only then will they give you permission to sell the product. Then you can go see if the marketplace cares. So medical device investing is very, like, different. I did not understand this, by the way, when I first got into medical devices. <laughs> I first got in, I'm like, oh, I've done 13, 14 different companies. What's medicals? You know, I can just do that. I'll figure it out. I did not know what I did not know. But when you think about this mindset now, you've spent all this time. It gives you time to contemplate. And one of the things I noted was this. The doctors that were interested in our stuff before we could sell it, um, those were the visionaries and the innovators. Makes sense. But you look at the bulk of doctors for technology adoption, they're not necessarily comfortable with trying crazy new stuff. And it makes sense especially for trauma surgeons, because this is the market that we chose to go into first, because that's what the military asked us to do. Well, trauma surgeons are the men and women that get very, very sick patients that are mangled. They're dying. The last thing a trauma surgeon needs to do is try some crazy, half-assed new invention. They're going to go with what they know to save that patient right now. So the innovators and the visionaries are rare, which makes sense. But those were the only people willing to talk to us when we got started because the, uh, the rest, they didn't say these words, but in effect, they said, let me know when it's mainstream. So the whole concept of crossing the chasm jumped to my mind because what Jeffrey Moore talks about in his book is that for any given technology. Now he wrote this for the techie world, but it applies so profoundly to med devices that I'm fascinated by it. But for any given population of potential customers, there are different mindsets that they have as to their willingness to adopt technology and the rate at which they do it. And the different groupings reflect the willingness or lack of willingness to adopt new things. So you have your visionaries and your innovators, and they're far to the left, but it's a bell curve for any given technology. It's a bell curve. And your innovators and your visionaries are on the far left of that. And then the bulk of the bell curve you're, he calls them adopters. He splits them into early adopters and late adopters. And then on the right side of the bell curve, he calls laggards or nevers. Uh, we call them haters. You know, like they're never going to adopt this technology. They think it's dangerous. And it's shockingly like a bell curve. So, But here's the, the genesis of his book that's important for the listeners. There is a profound difference between the very first customers you get and the early adopters. That terminology to me is very confusing because they're early. They ought to be really leaning into it. But in medicine in particular, in trauma, early adopters are a very skeptical group because they have to be. And so Though even the way you present what you're doing, and we get excited. We have this new thing. God, it's brand new. So we wanted to go out in the marketplace. We did. 
We said, we have this brand new catheter. It's going to, it's so new. It's cool, new, exciting, shiny. Those are all microscript code words for the majority of docs to say, mm, I'll wait until it's not new. I'll wait till it's like so boring that it's mainstream. And that insight has been the challenge that we've had as our company because we want, I mean, it, entrepreneurs, we're excited about new stuff. But how do you get into the mindset of your customer and how do you adjust your marketing, your sales, your day-to-day conversation to match what they are comfortable with? And if you go to an early adopter in trauma and say, we just have this brand new thing that's so cool, they're going to say, hmm, yeah, no, thank you. I'll wait until there's data and till this is boring and mainstream because my patients, I'm not going to do anything new and risky. And that insight was what really drove me to say, I need to take this book and get my entire company to roll around in it. And so uh, actually this time last year, that's what we did. We took a stand down, which stood the whole company down. We got all got in a room for our annual meeting and we uh, studied crossing the chasm. And we set out to make last year the year that we would uh, consciously decide to market differently. And where did you start? So... First thing we had to do was share the conceptual model. So I love ideas. I love the model. I'm, I, I always got to have a, a why behind what I do. So we talked about the why. Well, I quickly learned, as you know, not everybody cares about why. There's a lot of people that are what people, like, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. I don't really need to soak in the why. There's a lot of people that are how people, like, how do you want me to do that? But I'm a why guy. So what did I do? I overdid the stewing in the why. So of course, I made my whole company, well, like we physically came into the same room, which is hard for us because we're spread all over the country. We got in a room and then we just talked about why. And I, I gave everybody a physical copy of the book, the physical book in the hopes that maybe a couple of them would read it. And then we quickly shifted to how. But I want to just throw one story out because it's very telling about the how did we do this. So we had a salesperson. Think about this. We had started out, we were really just a year into selling our product. The first year we did very limited sales on purpose to just with some doctors we knew very, very well. Because with medical advice, we didn't want anybody to do anything stupid. So we just went to a very limited market. Well, then in the second year, we said, okay, let's open it up. Well, we got adopted by quickly by over 150 hospitals, all willing to try this out, somebody there. But at the end of that year, we had 150 hospitals doing Raboa, which is the term that... Uh, is the technique that uses our catheter. That's an acronym. That's I'll quick say it. You, nobody really actually remembers it, but resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. It's a fast, fancy way of saying you're resuscitating, you're saving somebody. Endovascular, inside your vascular space, not through your chest, but through your vascular balloon occluding, you're blocking the aorta, RABOA. So it has a great acronym, so it's got to sell, right? So 150 hospitals jump out of the gun like crazy fast and buy our stuff. And at the end of the year, we looked around, we're like, how many are doing it well? And the answer was not very many, like less than 10, we thought. And what had happened was, and 
innovator or a visionary at all of these places had grabbed it, but most of their colleagues were were not adopting it. So we said, huh. So when you say not doing it well, you mean it wasn't widely adopted within the hospital? Is that what you mean? All Yes, that's mainly. I'll give you my favorite example is David Scarupa. He's got a cool name. And he's a young doc out of um, Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, David, I know you'll never listen to this, but I'm one of my favorite guys. Brilliant guy. And he came to us early on and said, hey, I heard about Reboa. I'd like to use your catheter. And we're like, high five, man. We'll take any customer, right? Like, we're just getting started. So we all flew out to Jacksonville, and we trained him. We trained all his buds. There's eight trauma surgeons that work in Jacksonville. David Scroop is young. He's not the boss. He's not the grizzled old old uh, silverback, right? He's the young guy. But we thought, hey, we got one. So that's perfect. High fives all around. Train Dave Scroopa, train his team. We're out. One year later, do you know how many of the other surgeons were doing Roboa? Zero. And we're like, why is that? Also, what we learned is David Scarupa was having a hard time doing it well because it was a total crapshoot on which nurses he would get at any given point in time. And we thought, oh, we trained the doctor, we're done. We had to train the nurses. We had to train three shifts of the nurses because it's random when he's in there. It's one out of eight days that he's on call. And then all of his other colleagues were like, "Mm, I'll wait till it's mainstream. So that combination was... um, an example of this resistance to adopting this new technology. Not because they're bad people, not because we're bad salespeople, but because of the idea, right? They're in crossing the chasm. So they had one early adopter. And if you look at a bell curve, that's about what you're going to get one early adopter, one that will never do it ever in their lifetime. And then the rest that are kind of right in the middle. So we found the early guy and said, hey, hey, Now we're a year in and we've got all these early adopters and they're not doing it well. So I said to my sales force, I actually said this, stop, stop finding new early adopters. We're good at that. There's 450 level one trauma centers. We could probably get an early adopter at every single one of them. Stop. And they went mind blown because they're salespeople, right? (laughs) So I actually had one of my salespeople go, let me get this. He, he, we had a doctor from South Carolina call him. That was his territory, Southeast, and say, I heard about Rabo. I want to get it. And he said, Dave, uh, I'm going to go to South Carolina. I said, no. He said, what? A paying customer. And no, do not go see that guy. Say, thank you. We're not ready to support you yet. We've already done this 150 times. And if you take this, we will not be able to support you. So please wait. And my salesperson was mad at me because I just, he said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to go back to the existing accounts and find new users in our existing accounts, right of the chasm to the right of the chasm users. And he said to me, Dave, they already said no to me. And I said, exactly. And they, my sales staff was like kablooey because you're paying us commission, Dave, and you're telling us to say no to someone who's saying yes and go try and chase down and convince somebody who said no to me already. And I said, Exactly. So let's get, let's get into that a little bit, because it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, I think, in, in a couple of ways. And the first way it might be counterintuitive is that perhaps the best way to go about it might be to go find all of the innovators and visionaries. Then as it becomes more well-adopted, move into that next stage. But what you're saying is we're actually going to figure out those further stages first so we can go back into the rest of the population and have a larger impact. So explain why you would make that that choice. Great summary. It was a big gamble. The reason I did it at the core is it really bothered me that these men and women were, we're at six salespeople, like, you know, we're tiny. And it really bothered me that we were not supporting them well. We had 150 accounts. 
they had we had one doctor that wanted to do it, but we had we had not adequately trained their nurses. We hadn't adequately trained their technicians. We hadn't adequately trained the other types of doctors. If something goes wrong, you got to call a vascular guy in to fix it. Then they would get all pissed off. What the hell are you doing, trauma guy? And they'd yell at the, their fellow doctor. And then they'd look at us and say, hey, thanks. So it was really less a business decision for me and more just because it was bothering me. I don't like having customers that I've I called it a drive-by catheterization. We'd drive by, we'd throw a catheter at him, we'd say, woohoo, and we'd keep going. And then, good luck, buddy. That was what was really eating on me. We needed, I said, team, stop. We need to figure out how to support these men and women so that when they use our device, it goes well. And I don't care what we have to do. I don't care about selling another catheter. I mean, I do, but come on, guys. What we got to do is learn how to support the docs that are already trying our stuff. And that meant, by definition, because being a doctor is actually a team sport. You Like you had talked to me earlier a little bit about your thinking around the power of teams. Doctors work in teams. We had found the one early adopter, but had done nothing for the rest of the team and we didn't even have a conceptual model on how the rest of the team was thinking. Because by definition, they are not the early adopter. So we had fired up a bunch of these early folk and left them hanging. And that was when I said, hey, let's go back and take care of the rest of the team, which is all great. It's a great concept, except, oh, my six salespeople are being paid on commission. Now they said, Dave, do you really, you're telling me I'm going to starve this year, not make any money while you, we figure this out. So that was my next big challenge because I said, oh, yeah, I guess oh, I'm pretty much telling you our sales are actually probably going to go down. And uh, by the way, some real numbers. So in 2017, we had 170 new customers. Then at the end of 2017, I said, stop, no more new customers. In 2018, we had 30. So they, st they still snuck 30 through they're, the, they're through, still, through, 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 and through the door. Most of those 30 were early in the year that were already in the pipeline. Right. That we didn't just say, no, we com completed our, our commitments to them. So the back end of the year was no customers. By the way, I'm now going to my investors, who I promised you know, hockey stick sales, and saying, oh, yeah, hmm, not so much. We're going to go ahead and, you know, like go down, actually. And they're like, my investors are like, are you nutsoid? Like, what are you doing, man? So it was a it was radical thought. But uh, the good news is it's now the end of 2018. We've had a whole year where our company is focused on crossing the chasm. And our sales have been great. We grew. We actually thought we would go down. We grew 23% year-over-year uh, year sales in 2018, but I thought we were going to go down. Uh, so it was good, but it wasn't what we promised the investors because we promised them way more than 23% growth. But here's the number that we were measuring that I, I didn't share with the investors and, and uh, realized when I had my investor meeting at the end of the year. We started tracking in 2018 this metric. The metric was new users that come from existing accounts. That was the metric. And we tracked by name doctors who had already said no to us that we then focused on and convinced to try our stuff. And we got 161 new users in existing accounts which for our company was really meaningful. That's about one every other day. And those are folk that had said no to us. So I now am sitting at the end of 2018, thanks to this book and Mr. Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm. I can look my investors in the face and say, we know how to sell to early adopters, which we were really good at. And now we know how to do the really, really hard work.
of selling the skeptical, not early adopters. And we're doing it. And I imagine that that is the thing you ultimately will need to get to, especially in an environment like you're selling into where an individual user can buy something and whether or not that goes well with the early adopters or the folks who are not so keen on adopting a new thing, eventually that innovator or visionary is going to say, you know what, this is more trouble than it's worth. And I'm going to go back to you. Then you're done. You're and then done. You're, and then you're you done. Stick a fork in you. <clears throat> Versus your strategy was to figure out how do we get at least the early adopters on board. I imagine that and you'll probably explain this after I ask the question that that's going to make it a lot easier to go to all of the hospitals and say, here's our program. We now have people who are, who otherwise would not adopt a new technology adopting ours because it works. And it's just, it's a good process for you to follow and whatever your sales process is. I need to get, we're microscripting this even as we speak. The current front runner is this. We now have done, now it's over 300 hospitals and we've seen good implementations and we've seen bad implementations. But let us bring the experience of the 300 and make sure your implementation goes well. So we're really hopeful that we can script that down to a message that matters for a skeptical buyer and not a innovative buyer who will try something. But I love your comment because, boy, if the innovators try it and it doesn't work, there's a great set uh, in the book, Crossing the Chasm, about this. But let's say, Steve, you're the early adopter and I'm the late adopter. And we work together at a hospital. And you're always trying crazy stuff, right? If you ever, if you say, man, that is total garbage. It's just a dog's breakfast. Forget it. I'm never going to touch it. Now, if you say, man, this is really cool. I still might not touch it. But I might when it's ready. But you're dead on. If the early adopters blow it and hate it, you're done. Done, done, done. The company, you're out of business. That was another reason I was very nervous about continuing to just chase all the new folk, all the early adopters at new hospitals, sorry, and then just hope that they figure it out. Because now my, I'm a control freak. Most entrepreneurs are, right? So now my fate is in somebody else's hands. I said, ah, 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 let's get our team. Let's go back. Let's control our own destiny. And let's help these people do it right. We may never get their colleague to do it, but their colleague won't be able to say that Dr. Jones thought it was horrible. Right. And I, I think we look back at the numbers from that Jacksonville hospital, uh, just so the listeners can kind of get a sense of this, where there's one person who adopted it and there's seven other doctors not using it. That's what that bell curve looks like. It looks like that that's what you would expect, And but there's seven more who could be using this. And to figure out, now you're multiplying your sales by eight times inside of every single account, which Close, is- Close, let me throw the math off just a little bit. Because per more, and it's true- one of those will never do it. Right. Yeah, so there's actually six times more sales. Sure. But yeah, it's just a math right. thing. But it's important to keep in mind because this is a there's a great thing. I used to do some political stuff in my previous life, and one of my political mentors told me this, and I use this all the time in business. Don't wait, David, don't waste a single breath on a person who's never going to change their mind. Go focus on people who haven't made up their mind yet. And in politics, people want to debate the person who is the polar opposite of them. And it's just a fool's errand. They're never going to change their mind. Go find someone who hasn't made up their mind. In crossing the chasm, he tells you right up front, look, there's going to be 12.5% of the population will never use your technology in a meaningful time frame for you. Don't spend a moment with them. The beautiful thing about that too, you're not being rude to them, but you're just, it's like pounding your head on a brick wall. But the beautiful thing is their colleagues know they don't adopt either. They know, hey, I'm, I'm always going to be the last one to do this. And if, if they're voluble and they say, oh, that's horrible, we have a couple of these doctors that are out there. 
and they get up in national conferences and say, Reboa is the spawn of the devil. And my my guy's just like, Dave, go fight that guy. Go, you know, counter argument. And I'm, look, we're not going to do that. Everyone that's listening knows that person is always the one decrying change. We're going to go focus on the those customers who haven't made their mind up yet. Powerful reminder that Jeffrey Moore gives you. You got to you got to qualify your leads. That's the sales term. And if this is a person who you know is never going to adopt, don't bother. How do you know the difference between one and the other? Cuz they they don't walk around with name tags on saying I'm the innovator or I'm the early adopter. How do you, how do you quickly figure out this person is that, and because of that, this is the way I'm going to try to sell this to them. It's tough. They self-select a little bit. But by number, you can assume they're skeptical for any given technology. And uh, there's some other clues. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about picking these people is what is an actionable reference for them? So... Let's say you and I, are, I just use this example. You're the early adopter and I'm, I'm a skeptical middle of the road guy. And it's counterintuitive. But if you say, forget about it, I will never touch it. But if you say, I love it, I still may never touch it. Who do I want to tell me, Dave, you should use it? And the answer Jeffrey Moore says is this. The only actionable right of the chasm user is another right of the chasm user. I want to go find one of my colleagues who thinks like me. And I, if that person's doing it, then I'll listen, right? So it doubles the, the complexity. Because not only do you have to figure out what portion of the technology adoption curve does this person sit in, but now you have to find who will they listen to. And the thing I personally learned that's fascinating to me, they won't listen to somebody that is early adopters. In medicine, this is the way it works. The early adopters and innovators get up on the podium and they talk about studies and they argue and they have debates and they get somebody that's a never-ender. So they get either end of the bell curve and they get up there and debate and the guys and the guys and gals that are sitting out in the crowd listen to the debate and eventually will make up their mind. But if you want to accelerate that process, how do you do it? It's very difficult because by definition, they're never going to be up on the podium. So what I talked about with our guys was we need to make sure that we build these 161 right of the chasm references. I used to call them Joe Surgeon, Sally Surgeon. This is a, she is never going to get up on the podium. He is never going to write a paper. He's just out at a hospital working away on car crash victims. And then we finally get him to a national surgery meeting and he'll listen to the stone giants throwing boulders at each other up on the podium. And he'll be listening, okay, that's an early adopter, and that's a never, they're hating, and then he's thinking, hmm. But when he goes to lunch, and he's sitting next to Sally Surgeon, and he says, hey, what did you think about that Reboa debate? If she says, hey, I'm, we use it at my hospital, it works great, then we win, because she's one of him. If she says, man, we tried it, it was a total disaster. We're done. And that battle for the heart and soul of kind of the middle of the road surgeon is where our company has spent the last year. And boy, it's tough. It's really fun, but it is tough. Yeah, it's fascinating. In the work that we do, we often find people saying, I was really skeptical about this thing. I'm not going to get into what we do, but I was skeptical about it. But afterwards, I get it. And I really like it. So it's it's taking people from 
one side of the chasm maybe to the other. And I don't know if that's the right way to think about it. It is. It but is. It, the, the, the thing that you said that I'm going to stick somewhere where I never forget it is the right of the chasm references. Those are the people you need to say, this is something we should be doing. And then along with all the other great testimonials that you have, like if we go to our website, we've got you know famous people saying good things about us. But that's not what the people on the right of the chasm want. Amen. They want... What if I, the famous people say your stuff stinks, you're done. If the famous people say your stuff's great, that's table stakes. Right. If Joe technology adopter, if that skeptic turns to the right, and remember, by definition, you're a salesperson. You're with the company. We're going to discount. Of course you like it. You're, you wouldn't be working there. You wouldn't be pushing it. So, of course, you like it. And okay, famous people like it, great. But the real valuable reference is somebody who is right of the chasm also and says, hey man, you know, we use it, it's great, you know, but it works great for us. I'll try a little experiment. <clears throat> I'm, th I'm thinking you, to know who is right of the chasm, you, you need to know and then how to speak to them. You need to kind of be there. But would this do you Jeffrey think Moore gives some specific clues, by the way. And uh, I won't go into them or pull the book out, but here's a couple. If you see people that react, if, you're, if your stuff is new and advanced or superior, those are code words for uh, left of the chasm. If your marketing material says things like, um, voted the industry best. You see the car commercials, and they talk about, um, I just saw a Jim Beam commercial for Jim Beam Black last night uh, because I was watching Godfather 2, which I shouldn't be doing late on a Sunday night, right? But um, instead of sleeping. Godfather 2, and, and it's on AMC, and this commercial comes out. And it's Jim Beam Black, the world's best bourbon. And then they say, not because we said it, they said it. And then they show this industry group that's the best for bourbons. That's them trying to get into your mindset. I'm not the guy that's going to go try brand new freaky bourbons. The last time I tried a freaky drink, it was like a grapefruit ale that I couldn't stand. Right? And I'm like, oh, I, I know which beers I like. I'm going to drink the beers I like. Now, Probably half the audience is like, I love going and trying new cool beers. But think about Budweiser. They're not, they're making fun. The Bud Light commercial makes fun of people who like fruity aromas. And they kind of are saying they're marketing directly right of the chasm to the masses and not to the early adopters that like art, art, artisanal or whatever that word is, um, you know, mead. I love that commercial because it ties directly to this concept. And it just happens to be where, I'm not saying, but think about where our company is. We started, you, everybody has to start in a niche. A niche will set you free. This is for after you've conquered the niche or after you have traction in your niche. How do you go to the mainstream and the words you use need to be different? when you're attracting the people to the right of the chasm. So let's wrap up today by talking about the results that you got from applying this idea to your business. Talk a little bit about that and then we're gonna wrap things up. Okay, um, we sold $6 million worth of catheters last year. So we're in our third year sales. We did 1.5 million, then we did 4.5 million. And we're like, rocket ship growth. That 1.5 million was the very specific limited market. Then we said, let's open the throttle. We got all these early adopters, 150 of them, made 4.5 million. And then last year, we slammed on the brakes and said, no, we thought our sales were going to go down, but we did 6 million. So now if you're looking at us from the outside, you're saying, hmm, 1.5, 4.5, 4.56. So we added 3 million one year and a million and a half the next year. What's wrong? Those are our real results. And we shall see if we can now turn what we've learned 
into what I argue is six times the market. And can we go over and drive sales up now that we know better how to market to the middle of the bell curve, not the front of the bell curve? So we'll see. We'll see. Well, we have our first ever in the middle of the story idea here on the podcast. So maybe we'll have you back next year. We'll talk about how you how you did that rocket ship growth this year. Uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say because I'm curious just to see how it went because I think that's a it's a unique strategy and it makes a lot of sense and I hope it goes really well for you. Well, thanks. Uh, if people want to find out more about who you are and what you do, where should they go? So we have a kind of a strange name. It's uh, Pry, P-R-Y, Time, like time, medical. All one run-on word, prytimemedical.com. Thank you so much for being here, David. Hey, appreciate the time. Thanks for what you're doing and getting the word out with great ideas for people to turn into action. Appreciate it. Thank you. Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Game Day Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readit4.me. That's readit4.me.